Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for July 26, 2021. Here's today's rundown. Expect more audits coming your way. CMS is now pushing targeted probe and educate audits. The post-pandemic audit landscape is frightening. Healthcare attorney Andrew Wachler reports our lead story. Washington is revisiting mandatory vaccinations and masks amid escalating COVID-19 infections. This as school season quickly approaches. Can masks be legislated? Matthew Albright has our legislative update. We'll also hear from healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Ellen Finksamnick, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and healthcare attorney David Glazer. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Public health officials in some states are reporting increases in rates of infection. The concern is the impact of the Delta virus on the unvaccinated. In other health care news, the Missouri Supreme Court last week vacated a lower court's decision in the state's Medicaid expansion case, agreeing that the voter-approved plan to offer Medicaid to more people should stand. Alan Finksamnick first reported the story here on Monitor Monday. And finally, doctors, nurses, and other health officials are calling for mandatory coronavirus vaccinations for health care workers. They're saying that the safety of the nation depends on it, that according to the Washington Post. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Position Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Wow is really all I can say. After all that CMS put into their plans to eliminate the inpatient-only list, they pulled an Emily Latella and said, never mind. They're proposing to put all the surgeries back on the inpatient-only list and go back to the old system of evaluating each surgery for removal on a case-by-case basis. Now, as messy as this is, it's a good thing. As you've heard from me over and over, while safety aspect of their decision was questionable, the financial impact was potentially huge. So it's good to know that for now, those 300 surgeries will be inpatient-only soon. But remember, until January 1st, they are not inpatient only. Now, I'm hoping by the time I do my webinar next week that I'll have a strategy for dealing with those cases in the meantime. Now, what is more controversial is the reversal of the addition of over 200 surgeries to the list of surgeries allowed at ambulatory surgery centers. The ASC industry is not happy. Many ASCs had already gone ahead spending a lot of money to prepare and starting to do some of these surgeries. I will suspect they will ask CMS to leave some of the surgeries on the list. I should note that although that CMS has already designated nine that will continue to be allowed at ASCs, most notably total hip arthroplasty. So we'll continue to see a migration of all those low-risk hip and knee replacements to ASCs, leaving hospitals with the complex and costly ones. Now, while it's farther down your list of priorities, you may recall there's a lawsuit in federal court asking that Medicare patients be given immediate appeal rights if their status has changed from inpatient to outpatient. Well, thanks to the Center for Medicare Advocacy, we have an update. The court has issued a temporary stay, and that means not implementing the requirement while the full court makes a final decision. As I've mentioned in the past, if patients whose status is changing from inpatient to outpatient are given appeal rights, the financial and operational logistics will be daunting. Who knows how the court's gonna rule here? And while I support patient rights, 
this would just be a nightmare. Finally, according to Nina Youngstrom from Report on Medicare Compliance, hospitals are getting notices from Levanta on short-stay audits. The notice asks hospitals to update their memorandum of agreement with correct contact information. But there's a big problem here. Levanta was awarded the national contract to do short-stay audits, but Keypro remains the contractor for their five regions to handle patient appeals and quality of care issues. Section 1866 of the Social Security Act requires a memorandum of agreement only when the QIO is addressing quality of care and patient appeals. But that's not what Levanta is doing for many, many regions. They're simply reviewing charts after discharge for proper billing status. Does any hospital have a memorandum of agreement with the CERT, the SMERC, or the RAC who also do those kind of audits? Nope. So if Keypro is still your QIO for appeals, Levanta should not be asking for a memorandum of agreement, but if they tell you to sign one, you get to decide what to do. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1, RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday RAC Report is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel, and good morning, Nicole. Good morning, hello, and happy RAC Monitor Monday. Today I'm talking about a settlement agreement between CMS and the skilled nursing community, which apparently CMS conveniently forgot about recently. My team and I are defending an audit that is 100% in violation of the GMO settlement for a very large skilled nursing facility. The GMO agreement redefines medical necessity for skilled nursing, especially for terminally debilitating diseases such as multiple sclerosis. According to the MAC auditor, my client, who serves 100% MS patients on Medicare, owes over half a million dollars. The GMO settlement agreement dictates that specifically in accordance with this settlement agreement, the manual revisions clarify that coverage of skilled nursing and skilled therapy services in the skilled nursing facility, home health, and outpatient therapy settings does not turn on the presence or absence of a beneficiary's potential for improvement, but rather on the beneficiary's need for skilled care. Skilled care may be necessary to improve a patient's current condition to maintain the patient's current condition, or to prevent or slow further deterioration of the patient's condition. Yet my client received a correspondence alleging an overpayment of almost $600,000, and the basis for the claim's denials is that there is documentation that the patient has a diagnosis of MS, but no documentation of recent exasperation or change in function status. That denial reason is in violation of the GMO settlement. The denial reason after the first level of appeal got even more specific, and the denial reason was the initial evaluation did not document that there was an acute exasperation of this chronic condition. Again, this is in violation of the GMO agreement. For example, in the federal regulations at 42 CFR 40932C, the level of care criteria for SNF coverage specify that the restoration potential of a patient 
is not the deciding factor in determining whether skilled services are needed. Even if full recovery or medical improvement is not possible, a patient may need skilled services to prevent further deterioration or preserve current capabilities. The Medicare statute and regulations have never supported the imposition of an improvement standard rule of thumb in determining whether skilled care is required to prevent or slow deterioration. So now my client is having to defend itself against an erroneous allegation that's clearly in violation of the GMO settlement, which is adversely affecting the company financially. It's amazing that in 2021, my client is defending a right given in a settlement agreement from 2013. Stay proactive. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about uh, nine and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Alan Fixander, David Glazer, and healthcare attorney Andrew Walker, who's standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, it's July 26th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. Managed care organization payers, third-party auditors, and even the Medicare administrative contractors continue to ride roughshod over the rules meant to govern their interactions with hospitals and health systems. There is no accountability. Now you can learn how to handle these relationships. During an exclusive BRAC Monitor webcast, Brian McGraw and Dr. Kendall Smith will outline the best ways to handle payer malfeasance and abuses through an understanding of federal, state, and contractual provider protections you'll be better able to defend your hospital's right to be paid for the necessary care you provide your communities. The webcast is this Thursday, July 29th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now at the Rack University Bookstore. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. Like we say all the time, what could be risky today? Well, Chuck, it's two topics that seem totally unrelated, both to each other and to healthcare compliance, but they're not. The first is picking raspberries. So over the last month, I've been fortunate enough to have a bumper crop of that tasty treat in my backyard. Picking raspberries is always an interesting lesson in perception. I'll think a bush is picked clean, but then I'll bend down or stand up, and from my new perspective, I realize I'm not close to finished leaves had obscured lots of fruit. Looking at a bush a different way entirely changes the analysis. The second topic is brush brush fires. I just finished Michael Lewis's wonderful book, The Premonition. I highly recommend any of his books, but I'll at the moment focus on this account of the response to COVID-19. And reading it may change your view on some public health responses, especially at the CDC. So in it, He recounts the story of the Man Gulch fire. This 1949 forest fire was burning in Montana. Fifteen young forest fires parachuted in to address what they thought was a relatively small, slow-moving fire. Unfortunately, they were wrong. After some gusts of wind, the fire started moving seven times faster than it had when they spotted it. While the firefighters attempted to escape fleeing up a hill, It proved impossible to outrun this fire for most of them. But their leader, Wag Dodge, had an idea. He set a second fire and allowed the wind to blow it up the hill in front of him. Then he ran to the burned clear area and laid down. The ground was still hot, 
but the fuel for the fire had largely been depleted. While he yelled at his colleagues to join him, they either didn't hear him or presumed he'd lost his mind. The bottom line was most of them died, but he lived. Hopefully, the connections between raspberries and Wag Dodge are now obvious. It's important to consider problems from a different angle and to avoid dismissing an idea simply because it's novel or unusual. Sure, it's true that crowdsourcing can yield accurate answers. There's another book about how large groups of people can guess the number of jelly beans in a jar, and they'll typically yield a more accurate result than relying on any one guess. But the crowd isn't always right, and the practice that your organization has had for the last 40 years might not be the best, and heck, it might not even be legal. When you're looking at a compliance issue, be a raspberry picker. Make sure you ask multiple people for the facts. If you're engaging in interviews and the first three people you talk to tell the st same story, you may think, I can close my investigation now. But consider the possibility that all three of them are in cahoots. Or, more innocently, they may just all be in the dark. Once you've gathered all the facts and you need a solution, you want to be like Wag Dodge and consider new options. Don't limit yourself to one legal opinion. Or perhaps more importantly, make sure you get the legal opinion from someone who looks at the law the same way a skilled raspberry picker sizes up a bush. Carefully consider every angle. Now, Chuck, I really wanted to use my hometown artist, Prince's Raspberry Beret, for the song, but the lyrics really just don't work. So I'm going to do something unusual. I'm going with the same artist two weeks in a row. Here comes another Billy Joel song. It's true that for most compliance issues, we didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world was turning. But while we didn't light it, we can, and indeed have to, fight it. And fighting it might require you to think like Wag Dodge, trying something unconventional to save yourself and your organization. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was Healthcare Attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Now, with the very latest news on the social determinants of health, is Alan Fink Sandwich. Alan also has the Monitor Monday listener survey. And good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and good Monday, everyone. Well, among the state of the social determinants this week are the latest events with Medicaid expansion in Missouri. Many, including myself, thought this issue was a moot point. Last month, a lower court ruled the expansion to be invalid. This was triggered when the state's governor and legislature refused to appropriate the necessary funding. Now, remember, the voters approved Medicaid expansion in this state last August, with implementation scheduled for this month. In a time where voters are fierce advocates for their rights, their voice matters. The ongoing events make for quite the TV movie. Three residents of the state had sued, claiming Missouri is required to implement expansion. It seems the state's Medicaid program is bound by the original ballot initiative to enroll residents eligible for coverage under the expansion. The circuit court is obligated to determine the appropriate relief for each of the plaintiffs. 
The question posed to Missouri justices was if the 2020 ballot item for expansion required lawmakers to appropriate money, which would have been a violation of state law. However, despite claims of the state legislature, it was deemed not to be the case. As a result, 275,000 low-income individuals around the state will be eligible to join the existing poor of Medicaid recipients in Missouri, though a new enrollment process must first be set up. The original paperwork to set up this process was withdrawn by the governor, so back to square one. Eligibility will be for adults between the ages of 19 and 65 if they make 133% of the federal poverty level, roughly $35,200 for a family of four. The new amendment also prohibits the state from enacting work requirements for Medicaid recipients. Let's remember, these have been found to be an epic fail across the states where they have been forced. This action comes at critical time when COVID's wrath is being felt heavily by Missourians. As of July 22nd, the numbers show the following. 3,238 cases have been reported with a seven-day average of 2,244 cases. 1,548 persons are hospitalized, which is up to 40, which is up 43% over the past two weeks, and 12 deaths have been logged and counting. Missouri, along with Florida and Mississippi, now account for 40% of the new COVID cases in the U.S. We've asked a variety of survey questions about Medicaid expansion in the past. However, the recent rise in COVID cases has our Monitor Monday team wanting to check on our listeners. This week's survey asks, how is your organization faring with the latest pandemic wave? Visits and admissions unchanged? Visits and admissions rising slightly. Visits and admissions rising somewhat. Getting slammed on all fronts. Do not know or does not apply. Well, we'll review the results in a bit. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much. That was consultant and author, Alan Frink-Samnick. And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of the Modern Monday Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with a Monitor Monday legislative update. The legislative update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zellis, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zellis delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Thanks, Chuck. As noted at the top of the hour, the CDC is under pressure to revise its guidance and recommend that vaccinated people go back to wearing masks in public. As we remember, in May, the CDC changed its guidance to say that only non-vaccinated individuals need to wear masks. However, deaths due to COVID have increased nearly 50 percent over the past week to an average of nearly 250 a day. In the face of rising COVID cases, Los Angeles has brought back its mask mandate for both vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals. And this morning, St. Louis did the same. This past weekend, Dr. Anthony Fauci said that the government is considering a change in the recommendations. But for now, the CDC says it's staying with its current guidance that vaccinated people need not wear masks. In related news, this week, the American Hospital Association is now encouraging hospitals to require their employees to get vaccinated. 
The New York Times has reported that a quarter of all hospital employees remain unvaccinated. Finally, CMS released its 2022 OPPS proposed rule last week. In it, the administration suggested upping the penalty against hospitals that don't comply with the transparency rule that has been in effect since January of this year. The rule requires hospitals to upload spreadsheets that list negotiated rates with each of its payers. And it's those spreadsheets or machine-readable files that hospitals are dragging their feet on. According to one recent report, less than 6% of hospitals are in compliance with the requirements. And many hospitals indicated that they were choosing to pay the $300 per day penalty instead of complying. The OPPS rule released last week proposed upping that to $5,500 a day for hospitals with more than 30 beds. The transparency rules come from a single sentence in Obama's Affordable Care Act, from which the Trump administration created multiple requirements for both hospitals and insurers. Those requirements survived court challenges and heavy lobbying by industry opponents, and now the Biden administration has signaled that it too is serious about the requirements. So just an aside here, in this day and age, can you imagine any policy initiative in any industry that is not only agreed upon, but also championed through three radically different presidential administrations? So why are both sides of the aisle eager for these requirements while providers and payers are pushing back? Well, there's a lot at stake. Making healthcare pricing transparent, public, and free will have a tremendous impact on provider-payer contract negotiations, hospital pricing, and payer reimbursement. New companies have already popped up that are gathering this data, analyzing it, and monetizing it. And as we've seen, the press is already picking up on some of the more irrational and egregious pricing that's been made by public. And we'll see even more of this as more of the information is published. In short, Chuck, transparency requirements are here to stay. They are going to impact the way hospitals and insurers do businesses today. And they'll be a part of the national conversation on healthcare for many years to come. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew was the chief legislative affairs officer for Zealous. And on the horizon, aggressive post-pandemic auditing. It's coming your way, so be prepared. That story is next in just 60 seconds. You're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. The clinical revenue cycle is a little-known but highly essential facet of the overall revenue picture for hospitals. It accounts for a large portion of costs associated with patient care. Gaining a clear understanding of the clinical revenue cycle begins with the recognition of the need to improve its performance in relation to overall revenue. During a groundbreaking ICD-10 Monitor webcast, Dr. John Zellin will explain, in easy-to-understand terms, the importance of the clinical revenue cycle. He'll empower you to realize unrecorded but rightfully earned revenue for your facility. You'll learn that specificity in documentation translates to billing accuracy, reducing the risk of denials. The webcast is this Wednesday, July 28th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now at the ICD University Bookstore. Now is the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. And once again, here's Alan Fink-Samnick. Thank you, Chuck. So first of all, my bad. Uh, While the numbers are rising in many states, it is Missouri, Florida, and Texas that comprise 40% of current cases. Back to the survey, how is your organization faring with the latest pandemic wave? 
15% of our listeners said that the visits and admissions were unchanged, but where the biggest attention was, was how they're rising. 30% said visits and admissions are rising slightly, and 26% said they're rising somewhat. About 5% of you are starting to get slammed on all fronts, which is most concerning. Some of you not as much in the loop or this current situation does not affect your organization. But again, the concern for those of you getting slammed, please take good care and uh, know we're here to continue to support you as we can. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen, very much. As we mentioned at the top of this broadcast, you can expect more audits coming your way. Looking at the post-pandemic audit landscape, boy, the scene is frightening. Healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler joins us now for this developing story. And good morning, Drew. Drew, what is going on? Good morning, Chuck. I think we're going to see a lot of activity after uh, a year of uh, during the pandemic when we had the activity uh, pretty much stayed. You know, pre-pandemic, we had 13,500 PPE audits, and they were paused during the pandemic. We are seeing those uh, starting up again. And just uh, a reminder to folks, they present them as a kinder, gentler type of audit. But what, uh, and if you address them early and uh, utilize some of the strategies, uh, uh, we've been uh, consistently successful. Uh, during the pandemic, clients came to us uh, that we did not represent, that did not address them um, uh, appropriately or uh, consistently. And those that failed, we actually had uh, several clients with 10-year revocations uh, that failed the TPE audits. Uh, we were able to get those uh, resolved. So uh, just to focus, uh, remember, uh, address them uh, early. Um, consider providing uh, narratives if you understand the issue they're looking at. Consider outside consultants both for advocacy, for objectivity to see if you are uh, do need improvement, and fashion the education they give you. If, uh, if you leave it to them, they give you a dog and pony show that doesn't help much but bring a consultant uh, with you and appeal your denials. That could be very important. If you get those overturned, that can make a significant difference. So that's one area. Other areas that we're seeing related to the pandemic are we're seeing commercial audits um, on uh, testing, COVID testing, which the government uh, imposed on the commercial carriers to cover it. And the commercial carrier's interpretation of what is required may well be different than the government. We have uh, one now for uh, $800,000, and the position uh, uh, of the care of the commercial carrier has been: uh, it's not covered for back to work, it's not covered for uh, travel. Um, the individual must be either symptomatic or asymptomatic with known or suspected exposure to someone with COVID that was laboratory confirmed um, or have, um, you know, otherwise have symptoms. Uh, it, it, as I said, it's not covered for travel and they've also changed the collection codes. Finally, where I think we're going to see 
a significant amount of activity uh, is in the area of the Provider Relief Fund. We have um, uh, additional uh, response for documentation due for many providers July uh, 31st. We have seen, we have defended false claims cases for false statements made in the attestation if they were not accurate. Um, we're seeing a focus on the accounting and the use of funds. There's one reporting requirement for a 10, 000, over $10,000, but if you got over $500,000, that's an additional, there are additional requirements. So it can be used to prevent, to uh, procure, to uh, procure uh, supplies to respond to the coronavirus, but we plan to see audits in that. Finally, in closing, we also expect to see a lot of telehealth audits um, for uh, either waivers that have expired or not uh, strict compliance with the rules that have applied. Thank you, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you very much, uh, Drew. That was Andrew Walkler. He is the managing partner at Walkler & Associates. David, let's take a look at some of the questions that are coming in, okay? You bet, Chuck. So, long-time listener, periodic panelist, and I'm out of alliteration, uh, Mary Beth wants to ask you, Dr. Hirsch, so what do you think is going to happen with the THA and TKA? Are they going to, is CMS going to rethink this? I mean, as she says, total shoulders, really? Um, I think hips and knees are going to stay off the inpatient-only list and allowed at ASCs. That's a done deal. Shoulders is one case where the orthopedist may convince CMS to allow them to continue at ASCs. I have to wonder about heads, knees, and toes if you're going to talk about that, but we'll skip that. Uh, Nicole, John wants to know if you can give us the citation for your agreement. Yes, I can. Uh, first of all, the regulation is 42 CFR 409.32C, but the case that you can find the GMO settlement is, uh, let me look for it really fast. I believe it's GMO versus Salibi, Salibus. It Thank was you. in 2013. It's number 511CV17, if that helps. Thank you so much, Nicole. And Chuck, I will turn it back to you with best wishes for your birthday week. Thanks, David, very much. Uh, that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you so very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink, Sandrick, David Glazer, Ronald Hurst, Dr. Ronald Hurst, that is, and healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler, who reported our lead story. And be sure to be with us next Monday. That's when Fame Whistleblower Attorney Mary Inman reports on the Fifth Circuit's recent decision allowing the DOJ to dismiss a whistleblower's False Claims Act soon as huge news and has some very serious implications. And one more thing before we go, you can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. When you do rate us, give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. Rack Monitor.